I don't know about you, but the first time that I saw Top Gun, I was a little kid, and uh, it just the feeling of that beginning, right? Just the, the, the thunder, the roar of the engines, the joy of hearing those jets take off. So when I heard that Top Gun Maverick was coming out, I talked to both my boys, and I'm like, we've got to go see this movie. I mean, when it comes out, we're going to go. We're going to go to the movie theater. I can't wait to see it. And I can't tell you how amazing it was to sit in that theater with those seats, right, and hear that music again. I mean, even right now, I'm in chills. It's like, dun, 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 right? And so we came back from the movie, and Kelly asked us how it was. We couldn't stop talking about it. We were like, oh my gosh, it was amazing. You've got to see it, right? Even now, my heart just shakes when we're watching that, right? And loved it. The bass of the, of the sound and all that, the big screen, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Well, today's message is black and white to high definition. And so I got a question for you. What if I told you that we were going to go watch Top Gun Maverick? And I said, come on over, and we're going to have a great time together. And you come over, and you're all excited to watch the movie. And we come over, and this is supposed to be a black and white TV, by the way. I couldn't find one. They don't exist anymore, right? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to watch this. And we sit down, right? And how many, of you, how many of you remember black and white TVs? Okay. How many of you remember the channels? So a lot of people, right? This is res how many, like 12 channels? Like the UHF? I, don't, I still don't know what that was for, right? Three channels? Oh, well, for me, it was 12. So some of you had three, <laughs> right? Right? Right. We're going to watch Top Gun, right? And then we turn it on, and it's like, and I'm like, and we're like working with, you know, right? What kind of experience would that be? That's what we're talking about this morning. That's what I want to show you in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. That's what we're learning in the book of Hebrews. We're talking about the fact that what we have in Jesus Christ in this example is the high definition, the full, true experience of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so in this illustration, what I'm wanting to show you and what we're continuing to see throughout the book of Hebrews is why would you go back to this when you could have and do have that? That's the whole point. That's what we're talking about today. And so in this, I want to continue to encourage you. I want to continue to pour into your hearts to recognize truly how blessed we are in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're literally talking about something far greater than going from black or white to high definition. And one of the things that continues to blow my mind is when I look at what we have in Jesus Christ, how blessed we are, how truly we can come before him with confidence, and that's where we're going in this book. And we look back to what was. My prayer is, is that our hearts would be grateful. But here's the other key. The other thing I want to tell you is this. What we just experienced here in this sort of illustration is just but a glimpse of what it will be like when Christ culminates everything and we are in his kingdom. It just gets better and better and better and better. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to continue to remind us and I want to talk to you about the encouragement that's in this book. 
The whole core behind it, the reason that it was written, we've said it before, is that people who had essentially come to Christ or were sort of looking or examining Jesus early in church history were being persecuted for their faith. And they were beginning to turn back to what was. They were beginning to say, I don't know that it's worth it. I don't know that this whole Jesus thing is what we should continue with. And so in this, be reminded that historically speaking, what was going on was about 30 years after Christ had died and risen from the grave, this book is written. Now, most likely, it is also written prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So, what you have going on is Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen from the grave, the new covenant has been established, yet simultaneously, there's still temple worship going on. And so these individuals are looking and they're being reminded and they're saying, you know, we've come to Christ or we think that maybe Jesus is what we're supposed to be doing, but it isn't going very well. And they're turning away and they're going back to this old system. And so as we've traveled through this book, we reminded again that what the author is saying is he's saying, let's go back and let's just do kind of a side-by-side -side comparison. Let's go back and look at the fact that Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament system. He's better than uh, the priestly system. He's actually a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that's what we've been speaking to. This passage, we're going to look at essentially 10 verses in chapter 9, and it's going to speak to the Old Testament tabernacle. And so as we travel into this, we're going to ask another question, and that is simply this. In the midst of hardship, or life challenges, or setbacks, how do I keep persevering in Christ? Has anybody had hardship in their life? Anybody have setbacks in their life? Have there been times where you've kind of trotted along and you're sitting there and you're going... Okay, God, how long, O oh Lord, right? Maybe you're reading in the Psalms and they really resonate with you and you're like, how much longer, God? Maybe some of you have gotten to a point where you've looked and you're like, you know, I, I just don't know that this whole Jesus thing is worth it. And that's what we're speaking about today. And so what I want to do is we're going to take a look. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses in uh, chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at the earthly tabernacle. Now, just to give a quick little history, we know that there was the temple, and we also know that there's the tabernacle. Okay? The tabernacle was more uh, sort of, I would say, temporal in some senses, uh, in the sense that it was not established. It wasn't the firm building. This was under Moses. And then the temple was built, destroyed, tabernacle, and temple again. And so the author here is speaking back to, essentially, the tabernacle, as was given instructions to Moses in Exodus 26. We'll speak to that in a moment. If you look back at chapter 8, you see the author make a reference, and he's quoting out of Exodus 26 with the instructions of temple or tabernacle worship. This is what it says. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, 
In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room filled, uh, was a room called the most holy place, which had the gold, golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The author is writing essentially about Old Testament sacrifice, the Levitical priesthood. We've spent a lot of time detailing that out. We've spent a lot of time recognizing the futility behind it. But sort of as he's beginning to transition, one last time he's going back and saying, let me remind you of what we had. Let me remind you of what it was. Let me tell you about what you were before Christ so that you may cherish what you have in Jesus. Again, I've said before, uh, I love sermons, but sermons can be challenging because you've got to find a place to break it. Yet the book continues. And so next week, we're going to move into this understanding about truly what we have in Jesus through the blood of Christ. And it's interesting because honestly, I didn't plan it this way. This is how it fell. But I just love God's providence because we're talking about the Old Testament and yet next week we move to the blood of Christ and this week we get to speak about the body and the blood that was shed for us when we commune together after this message. And so prayerfully today, I just ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and that as we look back, it would enable us to cherish what is to what we have to next week to what we can look forward to in Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that I want to do is, what do you do, right? What do you do when you're looking and you're saying, you know, it's been tough. Life's hard. Maybe something happens and your faith is shaken. What I want to do in this, before you turn back essentially either to Old Testament or maybe to the world and say, hey, I'm going to go the other way, is to remind us of what we have in Jesus Christ. And so the first thing I want to show you in verses 1 through 5 is this. Sometimes you need to look back to what was to fully appreciate what you have now. How many of you have looked back sometimes and then you realize, holy cow, I'm truly blessed in what I have today, right? Well, what I want to do in this is, I was, I was thinking through this and 
realize what the author is doing is he's describing the old tabernacle. He's describing how things were done. And he says, essentially, now in the first covenant, it had regulations for worship, right? And also an earthly sanctuary. Now, right before this, in chapter 8, he quotes out of Exodus. And he's quoting right in and around Exodus 25. And in Exodus 26, we see, essentially, the regulations for the tabernacle. And so what I want to do right now is I want to do this. I want to give you an experience of what that was. We're going to watch a video. If you want, you're welcome to follow along. Uh, you can look at Exodus 26, verses 15 through 37. That's what we're going to see right now.
So that first video is to show you essentially the inner holy place of the tabernacle, what it was to be. And that's biblically according to what was stated by God in Exodus. And so I pray that that gives you a visual understanding of what the tabernacle was like. Now, the thing that I want to encourage you with is notice that the author essentially says this. The tabernacle was set up, we're in verse 2. Its first room were the lampstand, we saw that. The table of the consecrated blood, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold cover ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had been buttoned, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things until now. And so this author is essentially speaking back to what was. Now, some of the people would remember and recognize this. Some of the people would understand what's going on. But what's interesting is, is if you actually kind of follow the detail that the author is writing, he's begun to forget a couple of the little intricate details that were there. And there's one of two things that a lot of the commentaries speak about. Number one, they either say that this individual sort of understood but was at a distance from it and began to forget, or more commentaries say that this individual was not someone who was of the people of God. He was a Gentile. He was you and I. And he was speaking to what he knew and what he had heard, but he had never experienced it himself. And so in this, what I want to do is, in a moment, we're going to see another video, but I want to take a minute, and I want you to realize that for thousand years, this was how things were done. God set up a system to forgive people of their sins. And so daily, what would happen is, in the temple or the tabernacle, the people of God could enter, and we're going to see this in a moment, in the outer court, but the inner holy place that you just saw, Okay, that whole depiction that is out of Exodus was reserved only for the Levitical priesthood. So what you just saw, A, if you were not an Israelite or in those days a Jewish person, number one, you couldn't really go in to even get a glimpse of that in the outer court, which we'll see in a moment. Kind of an analogy would be this. You, right now, if you weren't sort of that group, you'd have to be outside of church. You'd have to be out, out there, kind of looking in, wondering. Now, better yet, if you were fortunate enough to maybe get into the church, then I would look around and I would say, okay, what tribe are you from? Some of you might be fortunate enough to be from the Levitical tribe. To be honest with you, as we're looking around, there were 12 tribes, and one was the Levitical priesthood, so I'm just going to do this. It would be these guys right here. Congratulations, you're our Levitical priests, okay? All of you could go into the inner court, maybe, if you were fortunate enough, but only the Levitical priests could go in to the inner holies. And daily, they would go in and they would offer sacrifices. They would do sort of the priestly duties that they needed to do. But what we're going to see and what we read in the scriptures is once a year, on the Day of the Atonement, the great high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, that inner court where the Ark of the Covenant was, that inner room. And that individual 
would offer a blood sacrifice. They would essentially kill a goat and a lamb, and they would do what they needed to do. They would take that. They would sacrifice that on the altar of sacrifice. They would clean. They would move forward, and then they would offer that to atone for the sins of the people. Now, we've spoken, too, that the great high priest would have essentially uh, bells on his wrists and on his feet and a rope tied to him. Right? Now, why was that? Because God was so holy that if for some reason the high priest was impure, if the sacrifice was impure, due to the holiness of God, that priest would, Indiana Jones, would melt, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so he would go forward and he would move into the Holy of Holies to offer that sacrifice once a year. But before he could do that, he would have to offer for his own sins. He'd have to essentially spend time offering for the sins that he had committed. And then you would get, hopefully, the offering for the sins that you committed. And that went on year after year after year after year. After decade, after decade, after century, after century. And everyone would leave. And as we read in there, in a moment, their consciences still were not clear. They were guilty. They would be like, great, I I feel like I'm clean on the outside. I feel like I've taken the shower, but I still feel dirty on the end. I still am in my sin. And they would scrub, they would try, they would do what they can, they would try to make themselves feel better, but they were still guilty. And so in this next video, what I want to do is this one is actually sort of a virtual of what the high priest would do. So you're going to get an experience to watch essentially the outer temple or tabernacle and the priest move forward with the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. So let's watch.
So I pray that gives you kind of an um, opportunity to sort of see what the temple or the tabernacle was like. Sort of a 3D experience of what that would be, what you would do and how you would enter. And the reason that I wanted to do that is, is I was thinking through, I could maybe describe it, I could maybe kind of do an overlay, but sort of that high definition experience helps you experience what they were doing. One of the things that I want to remind us of, again, is, is that we would not have the opportunity to be in there. We would have been in the outer court. So it's one thing to get on the inside. It's one thing to kind of, as you see that first entrance, to walk through and be in the outer court. If you were fortunate enough, if you were sort of the right person, if you were of the people, you could go in there. But only the Levitical priests could go into the holy place. And as we've said before, it would be you guys, so congratulations. But all of you were all excluded. And then we would narrow it down and only the high priest could go into the Ark of the Covenant. And all of that would go on. And all of that would happen. And everybody would move forward and they would come to have their sins forgiven. And yet it was futile. One of the things that I think is amazing is this. I don't know about you, but when I watch that, it, does the reverence for God in your heart get a little bit higher? Right? How they're approaching God and His holiness. How they're revering Him. Now the joy in this is, is we no longer have to do that system. But one of the things that I think we need to think about, and one of the things that we need to look back to, to look forward to, is how God was so highly revered. I want to take a minute, and I just want to read this quote from John Piper. Um, this is essentially what he says. The whole point of this book of Hebrews is to say that the coming Christ, the Son of God, into the world is the ending of the present time of the old. Strange, foreign way of relating to God and the beginning of the Reformation, where Christ himself replaces the high priest and the temple and the blood of the animals and the food and the drink rituals. That's the point of Hebrews. Christ comes and all of this, all of what you're seeing is no longer needed. And better yet, what we learn and what we see is that when Christ dies, and rises from the grave, and he comes and sets the new covenant, we have been ushered into the presence of God. We look back and we know in scripture that when Christ dies and essentially gives up his spirit, that the veil of the temple is torn. Don't miss that. Because for centuries, that whole veil, that whole purpose, as we read in this book in a moment, was that the Holy Spirit was essentially saying this, You can't go there. You're still guilty. I'm still holy. And so think about this for a minute. Imagine if you are in need of forgiveness of your sins. Imagine if you're saying, is there a God? How do I have my sins forgiven? And you're in the outer court. And yet, Christ dies. And not only do you get to go into the outer court, 
you get to go essentially in this into the holy place. But not only do you get to go into the holy place, you get to go into the holy of holies because it's no longer needed. You don't have to go through the high priest. You don't have to wait on him. You don't have to hope that he does things right. Your sins are forgiven and they're forgotten. And you can leave without a guilty conscience because Jesus has died for you. Let's take a minute. And again, I want to reiterate that sometimes you need to look back to what was to fully appreciate what you have now. And I pray that those two experiences would just give you sort of a visual understanding of what was so that we can appreciate what we have now. Now in verses 6 through 7, the next thing that I want you to do is this. Imagine having daily rituals and routines and only being able to atone for your sin once a year. Imagine that the priests were doing their daily rituals, they were doing these routines, as we know, as we see, in the holy place, in that first room, they go about their business. But only once a year would the high priest come forward on the Day of Atonement to atone for his sins and the ignorant sins of the people. We look and we see in verse 6, when everything had been arranged, okay, when everything had been arranged. Now, the reason that I wanted to show you in Exodus was obviously the temple and the tabernacle had to be set up in a certain way according to the structure that was given. Things couldn't be out of order. So if you look and you look at the lampstand, you notice that it had to be on a specific wall on a specific side. So, for example, today, if something was out of place, right, if something was off, okay, little bit of an illustration. You following me? If something was different than how it's supposed to be, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we do, no matter if I go like that and accidentally bump the altar, right? I do that. It's all worthless. Now, That's what we're doing. That's what we're under in the Old Testament. When everything was arranged, not only the temple, but when the priest was prepared, and that's a whole other message for another day, but the preparation of the priest was a big ordeal because he had to make sure that he was ritualistically and ceremonially clean on the outside. So if I wore my wrong shirt, if my button wasn't tucked in this analogy, right? I won't do this, but if for whatever reason, you know, one of my zippers was, you get where I'm going, right? You had to be perfect in order for the sacrifice to function. When it was arranged, then and only then could they enter regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But then notice verse 7, but only, only the high priest entered the inner room 
and that only once a year, and never without blood, meaning obviously the blood sacrifice. So here's another thing. Let's say that we did it all perfect, and I'm busy, and I've got something going on, and I'm doing my thing, and somebody interrupts me and starts talking to me, and I'm like, yeah, great, okay, perfect. And the next thing you know, I move forward, and I go into the Holy of Holies, right? And I forgot. Whoops. Right? Not a good thing. So I'm sitting here, and I'm like, stay away from me. Don't talk to me. Don't bug me. I've got to make sure that I've done one, and two, and three, and four. Why? Because this is a matter of life and death for me, but then also representatively for you. And the whole point of this, the whole reason behind it is to accentuate and demonstrate the holiness of our God, the perfection of our God, the joy of our Lord and our futility. I said earlier, when we watch this, and as we watch the priests enter the Holy of Holies, my heart kind of beats. Because imagine that that sacred place was reserved but once a year for one man to go in and atone for the sins of the people. And yet when he did, he did it in futility. So imagine having daily rituals and routines and being able to atone for your sin once a year. Now the other thing that I want to throw out, some of you are going to chuckle, some of you might kind of cringe, but uh, what if today was the day of atonement? What if today was the day of atonement, right? And for whatever reason, you were on a vacation, okay? So congratulations, you guys get credit. But we got a lot of people in the summer that are on vacation. Okay, well, I'll be honest, Kelly and I, we're looking forward to, we've got a vacation coming up soon too. What if that was the day? Now everybody knew the day, but what if you couldn't be there? You didn't get credit. Praise God that yes, you know, I encourage you to come to church, it's a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. But coming to church isn't what gives you the credit. Being quote unquote physically present isn't what gives you the credit before God. It's your heart for him and our savior Jesus. And then we're declared righteous by who he is and what he has done. Only the high priest entered the inner room and only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed an ignorance. How many of you uh, commit sin and know you're committing sin? Everybody's hand should go up. How many of you are aware that you commit sins that you don't even know about? Right? I mean, Lord, like, yeah, I'm not perfect, I know it. But you're telling me that there's some things that I'm doing that I don't even know? Yeah. Because God is so holy. I love this, and, and uh, I think this is a thing that will accentuate this. Uh, the writer, this is out of the ESV study Bible, describes the worship that took place therein. This is what the writer is doing. He's just giving a brief description of the act of worship that was going on. That's what you experienced in that video. Only the Levitical priests were permitted access, meaning into the holy place. They went into the holy place, or first tent, 
to perform their regular duties and to offer daily offerings. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the second section, that is the most holy place, after the incense cloud had shielded him from the mercy seat. He sprinkled it with blood of a bull and a goat as sin offerings. Atonement for sins was required for the high priest himself and for all the people. It's exactly what the writer is saying. And so when you're wondering, should I persevere with Christ? Is it worth it? The first thing I want you to remember is this. Sometimes you need to look back to what was to appreciate what you have now. Top Gun Maverick, high def, or black and white TV. The next thing that I would encourage you is, is imagine having daily rituals and routines and only being able to atone for your sin once a year. I've said it before and I've joked, but let's say today was the day of atonement and you were able to come and everything went well. Praise God for it. We pulled it off. We did it. I was clean. We were able to atone for our sins. Here's what I want you to know. Even though that was what was going on, you still had this inner sense of something's not right. And better yet, you pull out of the parking lot and you're ready to go and you're looking forward to going to maybe your, your dinner or lunch or whatever and somebody bolts down the highway and cuts you off and you basically don't tell them, praise Jesus, God loves you. You say a few choice words. Dope. You gotta wait for a year. And those sins continue and build and build and build. Why? Because God is demonstrating how truly holy he is. We turn to verse 8, and interestingly enough, notice this. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, okay, meaning that only the Levitical priests could go into the holy place and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. That the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now there's a whole other message there and we're talking about tabernacle, we're talking about temple. One of the things that I would say is, is don't parse this too much. It's sort of an over-referent to the whole system. But he's speaking directly to the tabernacle aspect that was given to Moses. If you try to kind of detail it too much, you miss the outer meaning behind it. And basically what he's saying is this. The Holy Spirit, the, the fact that A, only the Levitical priests could go into the holy place, but only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, was an aspect that the Holy Spirit was saying, you can't go in here. You're not able to come to me. But better yet, you're still guilty in your sin. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. And go back to the writing, how long, oh God? How long do we have to wait? How long do we have to wait for your blessed Messiah whom you promised, who says you will deliver us? How long must it be until you'll do something, oh God? as I either stand in the outer court because I'm fortunate enough to be your people or if I stand away and don't even get to go in because I'm not of you. 
And yet Jesus comes and he lives and he dies on that cross. And when he says it is finished, our sins are forgiven, they are forgotten, but also the system is now fulfilled. It isn't eradicated. I mentioned that last week. It's not eradicated. The Old Testament isn't done and old. We can't throw it away and just go with the new. All of the new is based upon the foundation of the old. But that system is now obsolete. The black and white TV is no longer there. And it's now high definition. And again, why would you ever go back to this? Why would you ever turn away from what you've been given? Why would you ever say that will satisfy when you've been given all that you have in Jesus Christ? And so the next thing that I want to encourage you in as we transition into that aspect of verse 8 where it says the Holy Spirit was showing this, okay? That the way to the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. It continues on and it says, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Even though this beautiful act of worship was happening on the outside, even though you experienced this amazing setting being in the temple or in the tabernacle, it could not clear the conscience of your sin. They are only a matter of food and drink, various ceremonial washings, external, notice this, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, meaning the new covenant, our Savior Jesus. And so the next thing that I want you to do when you're wondering if you should persevere in Christ is this. Imagine sacrificing regularly Going to God regularly, day in and day out, with no ability to clear your conscience to forgive you of your sin. Daily. And you're sitting there, and in your conscience, you know you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. Oh, how much more the mercy of God and the grace of Jesus is when we sit and we realize the futility of the system. Day in and day out, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty. No matter what you do, even though I've set this up for you. And yet Jesus dies and sets us free. The ESV Study Bible again says this, this present age as described as a time of impure consciences and a separation from access to God. You can't go there. You're not holy. You can't be in my presence even though I'm present with you. Through Christ's work, 
this present age is passing away and the new time of reformation, which has already been inaugurated, will later be fully consummated. Don't, be, don't miss this. Already inaugurated will later be fully consummated when Christ has appeared at the end of the age. We go from this to that with Jesus, and yet what's being stated in this verse is we're not even there yet. The full consummation is when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom. And I don't know, I'm gonna continue with this analogy, but you're not gonna be sitting here watching this in high definition. You're the pilot. You're on that aircraft carrier, and you're in that, whatever it is, F-22, and you're flying that plane for the point of the illustration. We don't even know how amazing it is, and all of that is ours because of what we've been given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Piper says this, isn't it remarkable that the basic problems of life never change? He's, he's basically looking back. He's saying, you know, back even in this time, people were guilty of sin. They had a guilty conscience. Those problems don't change. Has anything changed in this world? Do people still have guilty consciences? Are people still struggling? Okay, I'm a fairly optimistic guy. I'm more of an optimistic realist. I think things are getting tougher. Things are getting harder. Okay, I'm not a gloom and doom per se, but if I look around, I think, you know, yeah, a lot of people are hurting out there. Things never change. The circumstances change, but the basic problems don't, do they? The core issue is that we are sinners in need of a savior. The basic problems don't change. We are humans, and we have consciences that witness to our sinfulness with testimonies of real guilt. Deep down in your core, there is this. And what do we try to do? We try to mask it. We try to put it out. We try to kind of hide it. We try to turn away from God, because what we don't want to do what we don't want to discover, what we don't want to hear is you're guilty of your sin and there is no way to God on your own. But what we do need to hear is that exact phrase. And then say, but the way to God is through our Savior Jesus Christ. He continues... As we know that what keeps us away from God is not dirty hands or soiled clothes or distance from an altar or a priest. What keeps us from God is a real sin echoing in a condemning conscience. 
Just let that soak for a minute. What keeps us from God is a real sin echoing in a condemning conscience. But yet we can be fully forgiven and have a clear conscience, holy and fully in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 9 is, again, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience for the worshiper. No matter what you did, and today, no matter how hard you would sing, no matter how many times you would come forward, no matter how much you tried to clean yourself up, no matter what you would do, you were still guilty. And yet Jesus, yet our Savior, yet our Lord. In the midst of hardship and life challenges or setbacks, how do I keep persevering in Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes you have to look back to what was to fully appreciate what you have now. And then also imagine having to have daily rituals and routines and only being able to atone for your sin yet once a year. And also imagine having to sacrifice regularly, having no ability to clear your conscience or forgive your sin. Our take-home truth today that I want to leave you with is this. As we look back, as we look back to the futility of ritualistic routine, that had no ability to clear our conscience or forgive our sin. May we look forward, may we look forward to what we now have in Christ. And P.S., by the way, I would lovingly encourage you during this week to continue reading this chapter because that's where we talk next week about what we have through the blood of Christ but sometimes you have to look back to appreciate what you have now in Jesus let's pray Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for you. I know that this has been a little bit longer of a message, but I pray that it would encourage our hearts. Father, thank you for just the, for the manner of how you've done things. I pray that in it we would move forward with this time of communion and that as we commune today, it would just, it would just be a little deeper. It would just mean a little bit more. That as we reflect back to what was to look to what we now have in you, that we would be blessed and encouraged that we would see truly how blessed we are in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And once again, all God's people say, Amen.